0: is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio
1: New South Wales.
2: Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, Rural Boutique Distillers, a automatic index station of alcohol, is costing tourism and jobs in a thriving new sector. And when it comes to horse sales, they don't get much bigger than the one happening in Tamworth today. The Nutrien Classic Camp Draft and Horse Sale is going from strength to strength. Uh, today, we've got 600 horses. The big thing over the years
3: has been the, the major quality improvement. Uh, I believe that has come around by mainly uh, newer genetics. We've been our uh, import semen, export semen, and that's certainly made a massive change in the horse
2: industry. You might want to comment on any of the stories uh, on the program today. You can always send us a text 0467 922 684. That's the number to text me here at the Country Hour. You might want to talk about irrigation and uh, water licences as well. Send us a text on that one because a one-month warning has been issued to floodplain licence holders in the Macquarie Valley to ensure they have the necessary metering in place. From March 1st, the these water users won't be allowed to harvest flood water unless they have the re- required equipment to measure their take. The reforms became law last year and licence holders have had a year to comply. The Natural Resources Access Regulators, Ke- Keely Reynolds, spoke about uh, the changes uh, and um, the uh, warning to Joanna Woodburn.
4: So... Um- moment uh, licenses have been issued in the Macquarie Valley to certain individuals to allow them to practice floodplain harvesting and as of the 1st of March, which is next month, a 12 month period has has lapsed, which means that uh, the compliance deadline comes into play for those water users. So anybody who's been issued with a licence at the 1st of March now also needs to have primary metering equipment installed, which will allow them to accurately report their take as they capture water from the floodplain.
2: You
1: just mentioned that Uh, landholders who now hold these licences now have to have certain equipment, technology in place. Can you explain to me what that is and what it does?
4: So a core tenet of the floodplain harvesting policy is around ensuring that the floodplain harvesting take stays within sustainable and legal limits, and a core part of that is accurate measurement. So in order for water take to be accurately measured, compliant metering equipment, also known as primary metering equipment, needs to be installed. So typically that equipment will have telemetry as well, and that just means that data about water take can be automatically transmitted into a sort of central repository of information to a certain degree or or accuracy standard. So there is a slight difference between secondary measuring equipment, which has been allowed for the past 12 months. So that might be something like a gauge board and primary equipment, which is required from the 1st of March. But I guess the main message for landholders who have a water licence to floodplain harvest is to speak to a, to a certified metre installer. They'll be able to come out onto your property and tell you exactly which option is most suitable for your setup um, and to make sure that you're complying with the rules. That's, that's their role in this whole program.
1: Has any government agency been required to go out to check whether the licence holders have installed the equipment properly or is it up to the individual to ensure that happens?
4: So NRA is the New South Wales Water Regulator, so it's our job to make sure that primary metering equipment is installed after the deadline if water users are going to be capturing water from the floodplain. But the DQP or the, the certified installers who come out um, to do the work, they're required to maintain a certain level of accuracy, but certainly a part of NRA's role will be to confirm that everything is in order as well.
1: How will the NRA be keeping an eye on this to ensure that people are following the rules? I
4: think the most important message for, for water users today, one month out from their deadline, is to take every step that they can to get their primary metering equipment installed. So I, I guess from Enra's perspective, our main focus is that water is not taken from the floodplain that can't be accurately recorded. So there is a, a, a degree of time that might be extended to individuals who um, might have struggled to get their equipment installed by their deadline, but who choose not to capture water. So NRA in the first instance, will be making contact with landholders who have licences to find out where they're at, whether they've got their primary equipment installed or not, and to remind them that if they don't have the equipment installed yet, they cannot legally capture water
2: from the floodplain. Keely Reynolds from Enra speaking there to Joanna Woodburn. It's 10 past 12.
1: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
2: There's uh, been some discussion about the reasons why it's uh, been quite a while for people to get uh, some of those water meters. You might want to let us know about your situation. 0467 922 684 is the number to text us here at the Country Hour. As I said, it's uh, coming up to 10 minutes past 12. Well, New South Wales farmers say the clock is ticking with just 11 months until a national sheep and goat electronic identification scheme becomes mandatory. The lobby group hasn't met to discuss whether it'll support the new national EID scheme or whether it will continue or not. After the news this week that Producers Australia has withdrawn its support, WPA still supports the scheme in principle but says it needs to have equity around cost sharing and harmonisation between the states and territories. New South Wales Farmers Sheep Meat Committee Chair and Merriwa Farmer Chris Kemp told Amelia Bernasconi he's getting nervous as that deadline looms.
5: We haven't had a meeting yet to um, decide where we sit with um, wool producers withdrawing their support but um, we've certainly got concerns with the whole new system and we've been pushing our concerns up to government since August last year of what the new system needs to entail to make it workable for farmers and, and and um, you know, the biosecurity angle. So uh, mm. we've been certainly giving them plenty of things that we require out of it, which is sort of national harmonisation and the cost-sharing, And we're looking for the tags not costing New South Wales um, sheep farmers more than a dollar a tag. And and we're having no success with um, the state government in um, getting any support at all to bring out a new um, system that's going to save their department a lot of money. So it's fairly disappointing.
3: We'll come back to that in a sec, Chris. But New South Wales does have the biggest sheep population. So you mentioned before the cost. What is it costing at the moment? Have you started exploring these tagging options to, you know, prepare yourself for when these deadlines come in?
5: Yeah, yeah. So we we're, we're already tagging here. Um, we, we've tagged two years lambs now, and um, yeah. So the cost varies from sort of in the $1. forty to, um, you know, $2.50, I think the tags, the spread is with the different manufacturers. There's a lot of um, price gouging from tag manufacturers as well. Um, and, and um, yeah, that's why we've asked the government to step in and, and um, yeah, try and get some control on, on the cost of tags because... Um, you know they can do it quite easily by saying we 'll support a tag that costs this amount amount and and we 'll give this amount of subsidy, and the ones that fall outside of that would not get a subsidy or so it 's not i don 't think it 's very hard for the government to do, but they keep putting barriers up um and trying trying all the other states are currently giving assistance to their producers new South Wales the only state that's
3: not. We did have a $38 million announcement by the Agriculture Minister, New South Wales Ag Minister, last year, Chris. What what have we seen from that? I understand that there were rebates of up to 50% for processors, producers, uh, stock and station agents, and then a 100% rebate for the sale yards if they need to be putting these tags in.
5: Yeah, and, and that scheme, I think people have um, taken... Uh, taken up a, a lot of um, the stuff on offer um, yeah look um we we haven't yet taken anything from that scheme myself personally because um we got into um, using this um, e i d in our sheep because yeah, we'd run a start and we just wanted to get going and and the department seemed to be you know a bit slow. They kept saying they were going to bring it in, but they, they they were all talk for a long time and and it wasn't until we had that foot net um, mouth outbreak in Indonesia that they uh then suddenly thought it was a bit close to home and and put the foot on the pedal, so to speak so right.
3: so you could go back and and claim those fifty percent rebates I think it's run through the rural assistance authority
5: no there was cut off date, yeah there was cut off date it only it was only um I think they only backdated them six months or something, but this is a, but yeah, they're pretty I don't know if they're even doing backdate stuff now, so well, it, I, um, um it's all about um applying now and 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 I think they're up to oh it's over ninety percent of um of the funds have gone, i think so yeah, so there's been a good uptake of that' scheme.
2: War Farmer Chris Kemp, the New South Wales Farmers Sheep Meat Committee Chair, speaking to Amelia Bernasconi. We've been unable to organise an interview with New South Wales Agriculture Minister, but we have been told that the $23.45 million has been requested by producers, salad yards, processors and livestock agents from the rebate program as of the end of last year. It's coming up to 16 minutes past 12 on the country. we getting some reaction already to the news that uh, uh, in regards to the floodplain licences from March the 1st, water users won't be able to harvest flood, flood water unless they have the uh, equipment to do it, uh, to measure the take uh, properly in uh, the Macquarie Valley. Um, Braith has texted in saying these new rules on water are music to his ears. Uh, but in the uh, Namoy Valley, they're saying uh, that um, we can't install primary equipment for blood pain harvesting because the Water New South Wales won't release the SIM cards for the equipment. Also, farmers are now required to log meter measurements from bore meters after being required to install tamper proof telemetry meters. It makes no sense. Weren't these meters installed so the department could access meter readings remotely and ensure there is, na- there is no meter tampering? Now we're required to submit readings monthly, question mark, saying that uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to them. Sounds like a bit of uh, double handling, they're saying. It's uh, coming up to 17 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour
1: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
2: When it comes to horse sales, they don't get much bigger than the one happening in Tamworth today. The Nutrien Classic Camp Draft and Horse Sale event kicked off a short time ago and our reporter lara webster was there to take in the action there's 10 days of competition finished off with an auction of 600 horses she caught up with long time agent terry ryan to reflect on the last 17 years of the sale which he expects to uh, see going from strength to strength in 2024.
3: Lara i was fortunate i worked at the first uh classic back there in uh, 2008, and that was only very small then, about 100 horses. Uh, today we've got 600 horses. The big thing over the years has been the, the major quality improvement. Uh, I believe that has come around by mainly uh, newer genetics. We've been our uh, import semen, export semen, and that's certainly made a massive change in the horse industry.
0: So. If you look back, what sort of prices were you seeing in that first sale compared to what you're seeing now?
3: Back then, those early sales in the early years, um, we're probably averaging 8,000, selling 95% of them. Today, you know, we're up there in 32, 34,000, horses up to 500,000. Plenty of horses make excess of 100,000. Yeah. Uh, and that's because of our quality has improved that much over the years. And our professional horse people, have uh, they've improved a hell of a lot. Like today, it's made up of a lot of lot of owner breeders, a lot of trainers, and uh, bigger prize money.
0: Well, that's a point I was going to bring up. We always talk about the genetic side of things, but it isn't just the genetics, is it? It's, it's the person also training the
3: horse. That's right, that's right.
0: Tell me how much work has gone into it. And you mentioned there the professionalism of trainers and riders now, how, how much better that is and and the experience as time has gone on. What are you seeing in that space?
3: Well what we're seeing now, we're seeing a lot of business people, high class business people coming here and buying a horse, then sending that horse straight to a trainer to come back to try and win the Melbourne Cup here at the Nutrien uh, Sale, the classic. Unfortunately it can be only one winner, but everybody (laughs) wants to win. It's a bit like the Melbourne Cup, they all want to win it and they're prepared to put money up front and put a very, very good Just train her on board.
0: Do you expect to see that just keep growing, that interest you're seeing from those those sort of business people now?
3: Yes, Lara, I certainly do. Uh, Because what happens, if you end up buying a nice filly, they compete on that filly, she wins a heap of prize money, then you've got those good genetics to keep breeding your horses to keep coming back through. So competition is going to get tougher and our horse breeding is going to get better.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out now. I think last year the sale grossed $17 million. Uh, We've still, of course, got that record of $550,000 yet to be broken. How do you think the sale's going to track this year? Because I guess, too, that the cattle market will influence things a little bit as well.
3: Look, we're expecting a very solid sale. Uh, I wouldn't expect to break any records of what we did last year. And due to the economy and everything and uh, what's going on around the world, I just feel this market could be a little bit tougher, but it'll be still okay. If people have got good horses and sensible prices, we will certainly sell them.
0: Well, speaking of that auction, I couldn't let you go, Terry Ryan, without asking. I'm I'm told you are the bid spotter king (laughs) in this institution. Tell me, tell me about being the the bid spotter king.
3: Laura, I've got a very big passion in this horse industry. I'm only on a salary, but uh, my job is to sell horses. If we don't sell horses, um, we don't exist. <clears throat> I'm only paid to see, see bids. I'm not paid to miss bids, and I do love to put a sale together. If a horse is passed in, my job is go and sell that horse straight away. And I, I try and advise a lot of good clients on good horses what to buy, and I think a lot of them respect for what I try and do there with them, and I've got a great appalling with the crowd and with our buyers and sellers. So yeah, I'm only paid to sell them, not to to miss out.
0: (laughs) I have always wondered when I've been sitting here and told not to put my hand up for anything, what goes into making sure that you don't miss a bid out there anywhere?
3: You can normally see a twinkle in their eye or move in their seat. You know they're going to (laughs) bid. You just got to be there when they do. But there is a few secrets in it, but I'd have to sell them. I can't give it away free of charge on radio.
2: Nutrient Agent based at Chinchilla, Uh, Terry Ryan speaking there to Lara Webster about uh, the uh, classic camp draft and horse horse sale that's kicking off in Tamworth today. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music
1: and more.
6: Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. New South Wales police say there is no evidence that the phrase gas the Jews was used at a demonstration at the Sydney Opera House. WA farmers call on the federal government to allow a delayed live export ship to restart its journey to the Middle East, but the RSPCA disagrees. And record office vacancies as work from home continues long after the height of the pandemic. Those stories are much more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today.
7: You're listening to The Country Hour
1: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
2: Well, boutique rural distillers say an automatic indexation of alcohol is costing tourism and jobs in a thriving sector that has uh, opened up a chasm in pricing between spirits and other alcohol categories like cask wine. Eddie Brooke is a co-founder of Cape Byron Distilleries. He says the current alcohol tax system is increasingly discriminating against Australians who enjoy whiskey, gin, vodka, and other spirits. Only two distilleries were subject to this tax in Australia when it was originally introduced in the 1980s. Now there are more than 600 spirits manufacturers affected by this archaic policy, he says. He says the CPI-based tax is a disincentive to a thriving new boutique product and potential export earner.
8: We've essentially blossomed from nothing. Come 30 years ago as an industry craft, Spirit in Australia didn't exist Um, and we established ourselves in 2016 um, and when we started Cape Byron distillery where we make our bookies gin uh, we're on farm we're in the hinterland of Byron Bay and our family we actually farm macadamias and regenerate rainforests so have an agriculture and food background but when we started in 2016 we were about uh, one of 80 distilleries operating in Australia. Now, uh, in 2024, we've now got over 600 distilleries uh, operating. So it's, it's pretty impressive, the growth in the industry. Um, you know, and, and more so to that, the calibre of spirits that we're creating, not just from you know, the standards we set ourselves from a national, but international standards of quality of spirit you know, we're making such a noise on international levels, um, which is just brilliant. And, you know, to your point uh, about where we're located, you know, uh, on average now in Australia, about 65 percent of all distilleries are located in rural areas. So you think about that from, you know, 30 years ago where zero distilleries, the industry didn't exist to now 600 Um, And that rate of growth, you know, we've got such exciting prospects for the growth of the industry, but we've got the elephant in the room, which is, you know, the archaic and and brutal excise system that is just putting, you know, such a handbrake on, on the growth.
2: I've heard it argued that, you know, some of the big companies, you know, the, the Bundaberg rums and the, you know, the, those sort of uh, distiller, distillers that are, are, are big, uh, can handle attacks, but the small guys would really struggle and put a lot of them out of business.
8: Absolutely. You know, with big company, you have uh, ability to, sm- you know, spread a lot of those costs and absorb, um, but more so even just from admin costs. Um, to be able to handle. So the way the excise system works, and it's it's just crazy. The the excise system is older than I am. Uh, In 84, the, the excise system was set up and it increases two times a year. So you think about that as a small distillery needing to pass on price increases twice a year. Customers just can't accept that. Small distilleries, as a result, it's just chewed in a way, eroded all of our margins. Um, and it's to the point that it's actually, we're seeing distilleries having to make really challenging decisions of actually having to reduce costs and, and reduce overheads. And part of that is employment. Distilleries across the board are really having challenging conversations and, and needing to reduce the amount of people that they employ. And we're talking rural areas. Uh, uh, the absolute blatant easy fix and the ability to support the industry ahead of us is is really creating a fairer excise system that supports the growth of industry. And um, yeah, so, you know, my dream is to grow our business and we proudly employ about 30 people here and we would love to make that 40 into 50 into 60 and, and get our spirits sold around the world. But um. Uh, it is just a handbrake in being able to grow the business,
2: and it'd be important for an area you're in near, in and around the, you know, the surrounds, the hinterland, round, hinterland of Byron, to have those sixty jobs. I mean, that would make a big difference to the community.
9: Uh, absolutely,
8: you know, and, and it's not just us. We're 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 now one of ten distilleries in Northern Rivers, which is bloody impressive, um, and and it's and it's such an exciting thing to be see that growth of it. You know, you,
2: so what should happen? I mean, what, what do you think so the solution is, making a dispensation? I think there's a dispensation up to 10,000 bottles or something, Make, making that bigger?
9: Yeah,
8: look, the, we get what's called a, an, a, an excise rebate for craft distilleries, and that's up to $350,000 for, um, for excise sold, which is great. It, it, it's great in that it, it encourages distilleries to start, but it actually discourages distilleries to grow because every dollar that they, you know, more bottles that they sell above that, it's actually, you know, it, it, it's kind of the direction for businesses to go, you can be more profitable if you stay small, you don't grow and you don't employ more people. You know, the road ahead and what looks like a, a sort of a, a better outcome for the industry um, is to relook really at our excise system and, and really starting that, is we're looking for a freeze. Um, you know, a lot of the politicians...
2: Joe, so it's just a freeze. I mean, not a reduction, just a freeze for a while. Freeze to
8: start with mm. and actually have it, get it looked at properly. Um, yeah. Because we even talk with various politicians, and they are shocked when they actually learn to understand about the alcohol excise system. When we tell them, you know, on our bottle of gin, you know, actually the best way to look at it is when you see it when you walk into a pub. If you order a, a gin and tonic, um, the excise, the tax on that gin, is a dollar thirty. Um,
2: what would it be on so a bottle?
8: On, so on a bottle for us is about thirty three dollars now.
2: And how a much does a bottle cost? cost? Yours seventy dollars.
8: Yeah, on shelf is about eighty dollars, yep. but we sell that to our retailers, XGSC, for about fifty five. So 60% of our cost of goods right there is going to... uh, You've got to pay
2: that. You've got to pay (laughs) that before it goes out the door.
8: Mm. And the kicker is we've got to pay that before we get the money in. It's a real challenging system.
2: Eddie Brook is co-founder of Cape Byron Distilleries. It's coming up to 29 minutes past 12 on the Country Hour. Shortly we'll have weather details. And some news headlines as well, but before we do that, East Does Milk, the lobby group for Queensland and New South Wales dairy farmers, has a new president after Moy Pocket's Matthew Trace stepped away from the leadership role. 68-year-old Joe Bradley has been milking cows full-time since he was 16, and he told Jennifer Nichols the industry needs fair prices and more support from the banks
10: i got a lifelong passion for dairying and the dairy industry, trying to hopefully make it better. I'm based at Daybra. I'm actually closest dairy farm now to the north of Brisbane, and we supply Mullaney milk. I milk 220, running over 400 purebred brown swiss. My dad started this farm here back in the 1940s. His father had a farm in the area after dad passed away in 89. I've been running the farm as a family farm to then, and up until last year, I bought the brothers out. We milk um, stud brown Swiss cattle, heavily involved in the Brown Swiss organisation. I used to be the Australian president of Brown Swiss. I love them. I love them to death.
0: Northern New South Wales and Queensland are a different market to, say, the southern markets where we are trying to have our cows calving year-round, so we've got fresh milk rather than yep. collecting it seasonal, bulk, carving. In seasonal yep. carving and, and yep. then storing that milk yep. for value adding how do we go forward from here and keep the people we've got and hopefully <laughs> attract more people
10: well the only way to keep the people you've got is if they make a profit you know you get a fair wage for a fair day's work but not only that you make enough that you can pay down your debt and also that when the old tractor breaks down you can um, replace it you touched on about getting new people in the industry it's a real worry and one of the things that government have to realize is that if they want a dairy industry, the banking industry in this government needs to have a absolute re-mindset about how you finance farming. Not only dairy farming, but all farming. And I've just been through it. Talking to banks about trying to get finance to buy a dairy farm, first instance, they laugh at you and said, not interested. Because traditionally, um, for the last number of years, um, dairying has been unprofitable. How did you go about
0: convincing your bank that buying your brothers out was a good idea?
10: Great difficulty. Um, I think I approached seven or eight different lenders. In the end, I, um, I, I found two that was interested. One was a rural bank and one was the government-owned agency, Curator. All the others... Said, you haven't got a open hell. Just went away. And the way I could convince him in the end was the new price that we received from our milk from Mulaney, my supply Mulaney, Um and the new price I got from Mulaney. I could show him how I could make it work.
2: Joe Bradley, who's the new uh, East Oz Milk new president, and uh, talking about we need a new attitude from banks and government to uh, refinancing things like the dairy industry. It's coming up to 28 minutes to one. Shortly we'll have some weather details, but before we do that, let's get some news headlines from Adam Storey. Good afternoon. Good
11: afternoon, Michael. Uh, I've had this police report uh, issue today relating to the protests uh, down at the Opera House uh, when the uh, hostilities broke out between uh, Israel and Hamas. Uh, There were claims at the time that people in the crowd could be uh, heard Chanting uh Gas the Jews. Now the police have come out and say they've found up uh, no audio or visual evidence of that after uh reviewing uh audio and videotape. However, they're saying there are witness accounts that that was what was said. They're saying that what was actually being said on the tape is "Where's the Jews, not gas the Jews." Uh, so and they've gone
2: back and had a good listen to a good it. Good listen to, to it. Yeah. Yeah.
11: yeah, yeah. However, they are they are saying that there were witnesses that says they heard they heard the other slogan.
2: And I think the um, Council of Jury are saying that they had witnesses yes, came to them right. and they had, had, had yeah. heard that phrase used yeah. up close to people and things like that.
11: Now, the significance of that is that if they'd had that phrase been used, they it would be uh, liable to be charged under a section of the Crimes Act mm-hmm. uh, for using that slogan. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's the significance of that. Uh, the Federal Opposition has given uh, strongest indication yet the party will back the revised Stage 3 tax cuts. Uh, Peter Dutton has described it as a broken promise but insists the party will make a decision on their position in due course, but it looks like they are going to uh, let them go through. Uh, Pubs and clubs that have got more than 20 poker machines will soon be required to have a responsible gambling officer on duty. Uh, These people will apparently be trained uh, to uh, keep an eye out for uh, problematic gambling behaviour and will be checking in and engaging with patrons Uh, who they believe uh, could be at risk of gambling harm. Um, And that could also spark a few... Yes. Dramatic moments between <laughs> right. said uh, exactly. counsellors and gamblers. <laughs> that's right. So, uh, you probably yes. need some extra security staff well, on we as well. You would,
2: <laughs> wouldn't want to stand mm. between uh, uh, gambling and my grandmother. A in man the past, and by his three cherries. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that. I can tell you that now. But the old Condon family curse. Uh, <laughs> yes, I had two grandmothers
11: who just absolutely went oh. hell for leather on them. Yeah, yeah. You, you bet. Yeah, yeah. And, and This the- was the days when you actually had to manually feed yeah, in the coin and... Right. And pull yeah. the handle, yeah. so it became quite exhausting after a while. That's
2: right, but yeah. also yeah. and also the bingo too. Oh, big, big time on the bingo.
11: Anything where prizes. <laughs> <would be>.
2: Flights <laughs> going up a wall. The raffles. Just, <laughs> yeah. I went to them all. The Melbourne Cup. Yeah, yeah everything. Yep. Yeah, yep.
11: that's it. That's yep. it. Whenever Mum and Dad dropped you off at Grandma's, we're right, off to the bingo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, okay. Okay. Uh, great story out of Victoria. <laughs> the state government investigating claims that a. Uh, Hospital that received a ministerial visit had fake patients. Uh, I know. <laughs> in it's, the wards. It? it's very North Korean, isn't it? <laughs>
2: Amazing. <It's> just reel <laughs> so, them in. Uh,
11: now, of course, the uh, state government is very angry at this. They're saying there's nothing to do with us. Uh, however, one liberal local liberal MP has said. Uh, Uh, Nothing wrong with it. The community should be able to do all it can to uh, ensure it gets funding, including putting (laughs) fake patients in a hospital. (laughs) And uh, TikTok, uh, the uh, Universal Music Group, uh, had threatened to pull its artists uh, from TikTok uh, because they wanted basically more money from TikTok. Uh, So that uh, deal has fallen apart. So uh, the deal has officially ended. TikTok has started muting short videos featuring the label's artists, and users will no longer be able to create videos using their songs. Now, you probably go, oh, well, it's only one label, but when you look at the who's mm. on the label, Lady Gaga, Adele.
2: And they're all over TikTok. Yeah. In various Yeah. And Tay-Tay.
11: Tay-Tay. So that's it. That ends that.
2: Tay-Tay at the Super Bowl. Oh, yes, Monday. That'll be fun. That's another story.
11: That's another story. Yeah.
2: All right, All right, thanks for that, Adam. We'll be listening at one o'clock. Okay. It's uh, coming up to 23 minutes to one. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Jake Phillips at the Bureau. Good afternoon.
12: Afternoon, Michael.
2: So some thunderstorms for the northwest. That's the, that's the main sort of activity coming up.
12: Yeah, we've got to wait a little while for that. Mm. So that's the, the early part of next week. So before then, the main theme is uh, fairly hot conditions. Hot conditions, broad, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the dominant weather system at the moment is a high-pressure system, which is centred out towards Adelaide, but it's extending a ridge across New South Wales, um, promoting generally dry weather today. Um, there's a weak trough over the state's northeast at the moment, but it's really not going to generate anything of significance. And looking at the satellite picture at the moment, it's pretty much cloud-free in just about all areas of the state. There's mm. a little bit of cloud in some coastal spots, but uh, dry day. And today we're looking at temperatures... Over the northern inland, getting just into the 40s, so places like Burke and uh, Walgett will get to around 40 or 41 degrees. But then uh, during the weekend, the high-pressure system will move to the Tasman Sea and winds will switch around and become more northerly. And uh, that's when we'll see the heat become more extensive. So particularly on Sunday, Sunday's looking like a, a hot day pretty much no matter where you are. The exception might just be along parts of the coastal fringe where there'll be a sea breeze. But as soon as you get away from that, you'll be looking at temperatures in the high 30s or even into the low 40s. So we do have a heatwave warning in effect for parts of New South Wales for Sunday in particular. But uh, that heat will be around until the early part of the new week. And that's when we'll see this next system come through that you alluded to at the start. And mm. That's actually the, the remains. It's like the, the last hurrah of that TC that uh, has been bothering Queensland for a while. XTC, really. Um, so, it's been hanging around the, uh, up towards the, the Gulf of northern Queensland for a while and it's finally heading down. No longer a TC, of course, but it's, uh, it's the remains of that system. And it uh, looks like we'll come into western New South Wales on Monday and could bring some pretty reasonable rainfall to some parts of the northwest as it does so. So, we're looking at areas northwest of Cobar, so out towards potentially Wilcannia, White Cliffs, and up in the corners to Tifferborough. So that's mainly on Monday, and could be some fairly gusty storms in amongst it as well. By the time we get into Tuesday, it looks like it will track down towards the southeast of the state, but current models are suggesting it will weaken significantly as it heads towards the southeast. Uh, So some southeastern areas on Tuesday could see some moderate falls potentially, depending on how quickly it it weakens, but then by, by Wednesday it's pretty much history.
2: Mm. And so in the meantime, th- high 30s, forty, Saturday, Sunday, that's, that's what we're looking at.
12: Yeah, that's right. So today the highest temperatures are over the northern inland. Um, tomorrow they'll extend more extensively across the inland, while in the east uh, it'll be just uh, still warm but um, not quite as hot. But then Sunday's the real day when we see the focus. And we'll see places in the west get up to 44, maybe 45 degrees on Sunday in the west of the state. Um, by Monday, as that system comes down from the west, that'll start to cool some areas, but the heat will still linger over the northeast into, into the early part of next week. So it doesn't look like a, a really long-lived heat wave, but pretty significant, significant for a couple of days there.
2: Getting up there for a couple of days. All right, Jake, thanks for that. Thanks, Michael. Jake Phillips at the Bureau there. It's 20 minutes to one. Well, forecasts of a hot, dry summer never, never really eventuated across the southeast. Most areas recording above average rain in December and January. And according to one agronomist, it's delivered pasture growth that could be the best they've seen in decades. And it turns out the good luck might not be over with some modelling indicating that a let A wet La Nina could be back in Australia for the fourth time in five years. Stuart Burge is an agronomist based uh, in the snowy Monero, but uh, he collects data from all over the southeast. The ABC's Adrian Reardon decided to catch up with him to get his thoughts on the potential for another La Nina and how the southeast will be faring.
7: It is my understanding that there is a forecast for the breakdown of El Nino and then a reformation of La Nina during the winter period. It is also my understanding that there are various models throughout the world um, of which that which is coming out of the Bureau of Meteorology is, is, if anything, a little bit more conservative. So they're suggesting that uh, there will be a gradual breakdown in El Nino and then a reformation of La Nina. But certainly quite a number of the models from overseas, both Europe and also North America and Canada, they're actually suggesting a more more rapid breakdown uh, in the El Nino and, and, and then the formation of La Nina. But irrespective of that, certainly there is a consistency between all the models throughout the world, including the Bureau of Meteorology, that there will be a breakdown. So, I mean, that's, if that's the case, and we have every reason to think that is going to be the case, then... You know, you know, it's wonderful news for everybody.
1: Yeah, talk us through why it is wonderful news. So why, particularly as well uh, for us in the southeast, this is this is good news.
7: Well, it's interesting that the models are actually suggesting consistently that February will actually be quite dry, and then there'll be, re- you know, the, then the wet conditions will return. So we have to be a little bit g- guarded to some extent. But at the end of the day, if that is the case, then you know, in some ways, it couldn't be better timing because our active growth period both on the Monero and also the southeast you know, region even up and down the far south coast we can our most significant growing period is in that sort of February March April period you know as soon as we get into sort of you know May June July our low temperatures restrict growth so you know if we can get a turn around the seasonal conditions from you know autumn onwards then you know that, that, that's almost the perfect timing and We've seen that actually since the rain started in December is the growth rates throughout the whole region have been quite exceptional. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen the Monero look as good in many, many decades as it's looking right now in the middle of summer.
1: Do you feel like farmers out there are just jumping for joy?
7: Literally jumping for joy. And not only that, but I think most of them, most of them are scratching their heads in almost disbelief because certainly the forecasts, you know, come November, were anything but positive. But the, the the turnaround in a matter of two months has been, you know, quite extraordinary. And coupled with the fact that, of course, um, you know, there has been a turnaround in commodity prices for lamb and to some extent beef. So that that that's been you know, it, it, there's nothing better than when you get a combination of good seasonal conditions or improved seasonal conditions and improve. For prices. I mean, it's a win-win, and that's sort of the bullseye for all, all, all landholders throughout the southeast.
1: So, fingers crossed that the Leninif comes through because that would be very good. But for the time being, um, things are looking all right on the ground as look, long as we look, get follow-up look, rain.
7: Look, things are looking excellent right now. Let's not you know let, let's not beat around the bush. Right now, there's an abundance of high-quality green feed right throughout the district. That would be enough to last us you know, several months. Um, that'll get us through this predicted you know, dry February. And then if we were to get uh, further rain in March and April, that would be the, almost the ideal scenario. So as I said, you know, the, the Monero and even the far south coast, from what I've observed just driving through it, it's, you know, it's almost as good as I've ever seen them. And I say to people, have you ever seen your property as good in the middle of summer? And there's a consistency that that tends to be the case which is amazing considering how dry it was, you know, in that sort of that November period.
1: I guess in your view, you know, what kind of species are, uh, I guess, in the Monero in particular or in the southeast that you think are going to benefit from these conditions?
7: Well, it's significant that both the Monero and the far south coast, our pasture base is all centred around perennial pastures. And the significant thing about that is that they have the capacity to respond to summer rain and autumn rain. So I think that's really what is quite unique is that our perennial-based pasture systems throughout this region have the capacity to respond to rain at this time of the year. And I think that's why you are seeing such, such significant growth rates as a consequence of that. The other thing too is that what we tend always to see is that th- those paddocks, those pastures that respond best to summer rain are those that have been better managed and certainly w- well
2: fertilised. Economist Stuart Boos there talking about the possibility of a return of La Nina. Well, still on the weather and small scale, egg producers are noti- noticing hot and humid conditions are impacting their egg production. Alyssa Diamond is a Wongarbon-based chicken owner and she's noticed her flock just not laying any eggs in the recent heat on Dean Slacksmith had a chat to her to find out a little bit more.
4: So with the humidity and the heat, especially humidity, um, yeah, they've gone off the lay. So they've also decided to go into a molting cycle, which doesn't help things, which is where they lose their feathers. Um, Yeah, they're just really struggling, trying to stay cool.
1: And is this something that you've seen before?
4: Yeah, I do. Summer, summer is always a dreadful time for chooks. Obviously, we had the mouse plague; that was just devastating. Um, but yeah, just as in the raw climate situation, yeah, it is. It, yeah, it is very hard on them. Can you tell me how many um how many chickens do you have? Oh, so I currently have thirty one. I've had to, well, not had to. I like my chooks. So I I've, I've rebuilt my numbers after the mouse plague. I had 26 chooks and I was left with 4. What happened to them during the plague? Um, a mixture of of things. Um horrible. Um so their feed um from the mice got um contaminated. Um and also the mice um attacked them. On, while they are on perches and things like that. So the, the chickens
0: have really, they've been through the wars of sorts.
4: Some have, yes. <laughs> I still have one, um, Brownie. Uh, she has survived the dust storms, the mouse plagues, and now heading into, well, you know, still now, this summer. Um, so, yeah, so she's um, five years old, I think, now. So, yeah, so we still have Brownie, that's seen it all.
1: Can you tell me, with this heat, what do you do to, I guess, alleviate the situation?
4: A lot of, like, sprinkler situation. They love their water. Like, honestly, they're like ducks, really, at the end of the day. So sprinklers, if we can, um, and then also, uh, like, frozen veggies or really cool fruit and things like that, just to, yeah, it's all about the cooling down scenario. So, yeah, yeah, just trying to... Trying to keep them cool. Lots of um, shady places for them to rest and things like that.
2: One Garbin chicken owner, Alyssa Damon. It's twelve to one.
1: ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
2: Well, to the live export trade, and it's in limbo at the moment. The cattle industry is waiting for Indonesia to issue import permits for 2024. So far, there's been no cattle exported from the Darwin port, which is highly unusual. And there's currently two export ships that are anchored off the Northern Territory coast waiting for this permit issue to be resolved. To get a better understanding of what's happening, Matt Brand spoke to exporter Patrick Underwood, who has flown to Jakarta for a series of meetings.
9: I'm in Jakarta. I've been here the last couple of days, meeting with um, importers, the embassy, and you know, just trying to understand sort of where these permits are because there's um, there's a, a definite need for them. Certainly from from exporters, um, certainly from shipping companies, but also importantly from from importers. There's there's actually um, um, good demand over here at the moment, and cattle are selling. And the longer these permit the permit issue goes, the sort of bigger the, the gap in in supply, which you know will affect them down the track.
2: So we're now into the month of February, and Indonesia is yet to issue import permits for the year 2024.
9: Is that right? That's correct. So we th- th- there's often some sort of a delay, like we we as 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 exporters we sort of don't book ships. In the first couple of weeks of January, it's a, to be frank, it's an opportunity to sort of to, to sort of catch up. And December is a, a busy month, um, but uh, this is certainly the longest I can remember. I can't remember going an entire month, um, and now we're sort of into February. And um, you know, t- to be honest, we're we're still unsure. Like I've I've, I've spoken to a number of people over here. Um, you know, the, the, there was a a strong view that around the twentieth they were going to be coming out in the in the following five days, but we're sort of past that period now and actually starting to head towards the Indonesian presidential election, which is on the 14th of February. So there's a, there's a little bit of a concern that if we sort of miss this next couple of days that we're sort of looking at that mid-February and, and even mid-February plus, plus a week, I guess, because, you know, you would consider that the days leading up to and the week after the election there'll be a... Um, a lot of things happening in indonesia and possibly no permits coming out so it's it's um it is a a, a great concern
2: yeah i think of here in australia you sort of just before a federal election and afterwards you know bureaucracy sort of really does shut down a fair bit indonesia would be the
9: same it's a little bit different here they they they, they tend to run the the same um like within the different departments they they continue for six months after election then have a a changeover, but but nonetheless, these permits. Are, what they do require is a signature from the trade minister. It used to be with the Department of Agriculture, now it's the Department of Trade. Um, so you know we're relying on a, on a on a minister's signature to get import permits. So this waiting
2: period, how much is it hurting Australia's northern live cattle trade?
9: Look, it's it's it's, it's definitely hurting some individual players. So. So any, any exporter that that um, took on a, a commitment with a ship um, and a customer and, and, and a yard, um, it, it's obviously hurting, and um, that's of concern. It, we're certainly lucky that it's corresponded with a, a very wet month, so I think this, particularly the second half of January has taken, you know, a lot of Australia by surprise the, the amount of rain and how widespread it is, so... We are in a period where it's where it's very wet and, and, and you know, to be, to be frank, if we're trying to do a ship last week or next week, we'd, we'd struggle with supply. So that part we're lucky. If I think if we had, you know, four to six to seven weeks without permits in any other time of the year, it would affect the production side of things, the producers, whereas this is more about the actual supply chain. But it's important to note that it's in, impacting um, importers because, you know, one thing about importers is they sell cattle every day of the year and if they have a, a gap of, of you know, again, if it's four, six, seven weeks without any cattle from Australia, um, then then it's going to impact them down the track.
2: And they've got Ramadan fast approaching.
9: That's right. So their the, the peak supply uh, so periods or sales periods will be um, the week leading into Ramadan, and certainly uh, the week after, where they you know they sell significant volumes of Australian cattle. So. Most of the importers up here are holding sales back, selling to select uh, customers and just restricting to a sort of per day sales side of things so um, and and holding them back for that peak demand period. So I guess if you if you, if you try and run it through the fact that that, that rubber will finish um, sort of late late March it will it will at least correspond to the the, the dry season. Um, we, we assume that the you know rain's going to finish March around Easter so the good news is Australia will have you know significant volumes of cattle um, available then to, to, to but, but, but you know they do like to feed cattle for 80 to 100 days and you can't do that if you've had to you know sell, sell, you, sell you you know most of your stock and then and then re-import.
2: Patrick Underwood, the Managing Director of Australian Cattle Enterprises. Now, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics data, the last Darwin Port, uh, the last time Darwin Port had no live exports for a whole month was 34 years ago in March of 1990. It's coming up to five minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour
1: on ABC Radio New South Wales.
2: The Federal Government has just announced changes to backpacker visas, meaning that those who volunteer after a natural disaster can extend their visas. Under previous arrangements, working holidaymakers who worked or volunteers in areas affected by floods and bushfires were eligible to apply for a second or a third year on their visa. From today, this work will extend beyond flood and bushfire recovery to other forms of natural disasters, such as cyclones or storm surges, and is part of the government's response to recent disasters in Queensland. So a change, uh, not just floods and bushfires, uh, uh, working holidaymaker visa holders, can get an extra year, extend their visas if they also uh, get involved in helping out with cyclone or storm surges as well. It's coming up to uh, four minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Air. Now, one of Australia's largest wine grape producers is investing in driverless tractors. It's a move that could drastically reduce the number of lower skilled staff the company needs on its remote Properties Duxton Vineyards produces 26 varietals over 2,500 hectares in southern New South Wales and northwest Victoria. The company is trialling a tractor from New Zealand Company, a New Zealand company called Oxen, which, plan, which plans to rapidly increase its driverless fleet if everything goes well. Elsie Kennedy has more.
1: That's the sound of an Oxen smart machine. It's a tractor without a driver that's remotely operated via a tablet. It was developed by a New Zealand company specifically for vineyards, and it can mow grass, trim suckers and spray weeds. It's the first one in Australia, and it was brought here by Duxton Vineyards, one of Australia's largest wine grape producers. Duxton Vineyards General Manager Wayne Ellis says he hopes it will save the company money in the
13: long term. We're remote where we are now, so we're about an hour and a half from Muldura. Um The machine is driverless, uh, and we find it difficult to get employees so it 's not replacing an employee it 's doing tasks that we actually don 't have employees in place to do, and it can do multiple tasks at one
1: and so one of these machines costs between three hundred and five hundred thousand dollars. How long do you think it'll take you to, to pay off the cost of that machine?
13: Uh, one full year.
1: How many of these machines do you think you might end up buying?
13: All going well with this and we get the extra R&D, so we're implementing some new machines that we would like to have inside the, the Australian canopy. 20?
1: If in the future you were to invest
13: in 20 of these machines,
1: they're replacing four staff each. That's about... 80 positions?
13: won't replace four staff each because you still need a controller. It changes your scope from uh, a farm operator to someone that's more technical advanced. So even for higher ed students that are in science or physics or IT, this is uh, a change in agriculture, horticulture, opposed to what we've seen that you're just a tractor driver. It actually changes and you're actually into automation which is robotics.
1: I wanted to, if possible, just briefly put this in context. There's been a few things happening with wine prices. Can you tell me a bit about what's happening with wine prices and how that's affected your business decision-making?
13: Well, the wine prices, is challenging. So Australia is definitely an oversupply, but so is the globe. Um, The benefit of that over the last year, the globe has had a down harvest, which is starting to shrink the surplus globally. Which will improve the pricing in the next um, year or two.
2: Angus Cochrane ending that report from LC Kennedy. Let's go to markets.
12: <laughs> uh, 64, $60,
2: $60,
6: and to Griffith Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers jumped to thirteen thousand three hundred lambs after a week off. The quality was very good on the heavy and extra heavy runs, while trade weights were mixed in quality. Store lambs were very limited and there was a good lineup of hoggets. The market lifted ten to fifteen on the heavy and extra heavy lambs. Trade weights were firm. The few stores sold from 78 to 98. Prime trades 22 to 24 kilos, 156 to 168, 24 to 26, 164 to 184, and they averaged 640 to 670. The heavy lambs 26 to 30 kilos, 180 to 216, over 30 kilos topped at 260 and averaged between 680 and 720. The best price for Hoggett was 130. 8,600 head of mutton were penned. The quality good with most heavy weights. Heavy sheep averaged 10 to 15 better. The medium weights were firm to five dearer. Medium weights 56 to 84. The heavy crossbreds 110 to 128. The merinos reached 135. This has been Graham Richard. And that's the market information for today and for the
2: week. You've been listening to the Country Hour. Well, I hope you stay cool over the weekend. Sounds like it might be a bit of a hot one in many parts around the state. It's heading up to news time.